Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight, everybody. Thank you for sharing your evening with me. I am really excited about tonight. Uh, but first, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. He and his wife are na native storytellers, and uh, I urge you to check them out on the internet because if you've never experienced what native storytellers can do with their wisdom, their insight, and their history, you're in for an amazing adventure. So, Ken Quiethawk and native storytellers, check them out. Tonight, um, you know, they say that uh, fact is often stranger than fiction, and, and uh, Robert Guffey is with me tonight, and he, he is living proof that, that that is absolutely true. He's written two books, Camellio and Cryptoscatology, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about both of them hopefully tonight, but we're going to start with Camellio, which is an amazing, mesmerizing mix of Charles Burkowski, Hunter S. Thompson, and Philip K. Dick. It's a true, true account of what happened in a seedy Southern California town with an enthusiastic and unrepentant heroin addict named Dion Fuller, as, as he sheltered a U.S. Marine who'd stolen night vision goggles and perhaps a few top-secret files from a nearby military base. He found himself arrested under the auspices of uh, the Patriot Act for conspiring with international terrorists to smuggle top-secret military equipment out of, the, uh, out of Camp Pendleton. The fact that he had absolutely nothing to do with international terrorists smuggling top-secret military equipment or Camp Pendleton didn't seem to bother the military. He was released from jail after a six-day-long stint with terrorist-style in interrogation. Subsequently, he believed himself under the intense government scrutiny and, he suspected, the subject of bizarre experimentation involving cloaking, electro-optical camouflage so extreme it renders observers practically invisible from a distance of some meters. By the Department of Homeland Security? Hallucination? Hmm, maybe. Except Robert Guffey, an English teacher and Dion's friend, tracked down and interviewed one of the scientists behind the project codenamed Cam Cam 
Camarello. I, and I, I knew I was going to stumble on that one. It was experimental technology which appears to have been stolen by the U.S. Department of Defense and deployed on American soil. More shocking still, he discovered that the DOD has been experimenting with its newest technologies on a number of American citizens. Robert is a lecturer in the Department of English at California State University, Long Beach, a graduate of the famed Clarion Writers Workshop in Seattle. He's the author of a collection of novellas. His first book of nonfiction was Cryptoscatology, Conspiracy Theory as Art Form, and, of course, tonight's focus. Camelio. I, you know, I know it's Camelia. Camelio. Thank you. Camelio. Um, sometimes the eyes will see and the tongue will not follow. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks so much for being here and joining me tonight. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. Well, it's, you know, I, I have to admit, um, the first of your two books, the title fascinated me, uh, Cryptoscatology, and um, then I had to read your other book, Camellio, as well, and and I have found both of them utterly fascinating and, you know, stranger than fiction, and uh the, the cryptoscatology book I found fascinating. Everybody should read that one. That's a that's a really cool book because you go into all sorts of conspiracy things that um, they're true. But Camellio is is a is a more personalized topic. You 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 know you're a part of it. And how did you ever ever find Dion? And I mean, did he find you? Had you been friends forever? How did that happen? Uh, well, um, yes, it, it's, it's a strange story, as the, the subtitle um, uh, says. Uh, Cryptoscatology was, was my first book, and Camellio my third. At this point, I've published seven books, actually, and I, I, I write fiction and nonfiction, uh, but both Cryptoscatology and Camellio are decidedly nonfiction. Uh, Camellio is, is a personal narrative, as well as being... A, a work of journalism, I suppose you could say, um, mm-hmm. and it's about. Uh, I, I call him Dion in the book. His real name is Damien, and I've known him since my uh, 16th birthday. The only the only thing in the book that I changed, you know, from reality was I, I changed some of the names, except for those well, people yeah. who were public figures. Richard Schellinger is a public figure, so obviously I kept his name the same. Other people, I I had to change their names, um, and so. Damien, I met on my 16th birthday. Um, uh, I, I've known him for for many years, um, uh, and you know, this the the subject of the book began July 12, 2003, and I remember the date specifically because that was also the day I was initiated into the third degree of, of Freemasonry. Uh, and in fact, I had been talking to Damien about that not long before, uh, and after I had gone through the third degree ritual, I went home to call Damien to let him know that I had not been sacrificed to Baphomet or anything like that. And, uh, he, he wasn't there. He didn't answer the phone. So I left a message and I assumed he'd call back. He usually would call back pretty quickly, you know, a day or two, Uh a whole week 
went by, and he never returned the phone call, which uh, I thought was odd. So about seven, eight days pass. Uh, finally, he calls me, and he tells me this what seemed to be a wild story about how he had spent the last week uh, in, in jail in San Diego. Uh, he was living in the Pacific Beach area of San Diego at that time, and uh, he his house had become something of a uh, party house, uh, shall we say, uh, questionable characters coming in and out. Uh, and one of the people he met uh, was a guy named Lee, or at least he said his name was Lee. Later on, we were told his name was Doyle. Um, and this guy, Lee, uh, had gone AWOL from Camp Pendleton, which was very close to where Damien was living. Camp Pendleton is a, a Marine base. And uh, now Damien did not know that the guy had gone AWOL. He was just someone who showed, you know, a friend of a friend, showed up at the party. He asked if he could like, sleep on his couch for a few days. Damien said, sure. I think he'd been there for maybe three days. And um, he, Damien uh, didn't know that when he went AWOL from Camp Pendleton, he had taken a 9 millimeter Iraqi gun uh, that was taken off the body of a dead Iraqi general, 23 pairs of high-tech night vision goggles, or at least we thought it was 23 at the time. Uh, turned out to be uh, more, we learned later on, uh, a DOD laptop computer, uh, and an entire truck. Uh, and some people will <laughs> question me and say, how is it possible that two years after 9-11, uh, a guy just walked off with a truck and, and all this high-tech equipment? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Uh, but the, the fact is, if you go back just a few years earlier, uh, there was a, a fellow who actually – stole an entire tank uh, off an armory and drove it right through the middle of San Diego. And you can actually go to YouTube, punch in, you know, San Diego tank, <laughs> freeway, those keywords, <laughs> and you'll find the footage. You'll see this guy wearing nothing but like an undershirt and some shorts driving this tank going right through the middle of San Diego. He's going over fire hydrants, going over cars, flattening uh, mailboxes. You know, made it to the middle of the, the freeway, and the cops came in, swarmed it because he got stuck in the middle of the freeway, wasn't able to move the tank anymore. The cops just swarmed up there, and you could see them just, you know, you know pushing each other out of the way to get the opportunity to be the first guy to shoot this guy. Um, no. And uh, the, there was, in fact, a whole documentary about that incident, and it weirdly enough ties in. Uh, with Camelio, because the guy who stole the tank wanted to drive it to City Hall, where he was intent on making a statement that he claimed that he was being harassed electronically, uh -huh. uh, surveilled and harassed uh, by mysterious government forces. So that's why he stole the tank and why he wanted to go to City Hall to make this statement. But he got shot before he could get anywhere near City Hall. Uh, the, that incident actually plays into Camelio. So uh, a few years after that, this guy goes AWOL, steals a truck. Now that you know that you can actually steal a tank and drive it through the middle of San Diego, maybe it's more believable that this guy stole a truck. Um, Absolutely. So he he had some of these goggles in Damien's house, and he had the, the laptop in Damien's house. And Damien's having this party this one night uh, in July of 2003, and he sees this kid, Lee, open up the laptop computer, and this DOD symbol appears on the screen. And immediately Damien says, oh, okay, uh, you know, take your LoJack stuff and get the hell out of here uh, as quickly as possible. And the guy says, oh, don't worry. Uh, you know, they can't track this stuff. 
uh, within minutes, there's a knock at the door. Damien opens it. There's a woman there who says she's from NCIS. This, this is like before the TV show, NCIS. Uh, she says she's Special Agent, Naval Criminal Investigative Services. She's there with two men in black looking goons behind her. And she says, we're here to search the apartment. And Damien, whose father was a narcotics cop, knew full well his rights. And he said, well, do you have a warrant? She said, no, but we can get one. Uh, Damien said, why don't you go get the warrant and come back? She said, we will do that. He closes the door on her, immediately turns to everyone at the party. There's a party going on in the middle of this. He tells everyone at the party, grab your stuff, meaning grab your illicit substances, and, and run out the back. They throw their drugs onto his carpet and then run out the back. Um, not long afterwards, uh, the San Diego Police Department shows up and the NCIS woman shows up with the warrant. Uh-huh. Damien described it as being like the San Diego, the police kind of like doing this Keystone Cop number, uh, kind of bumping into NCIS. They didn't seem to be working together in any way. They seemed to be working in opposition to each other. Neither of them cared at all about all the, the drugs littering the carpet. They didn't seem to care about that at all. They seemed most intent on retrieving these night vision goggles. They didn't particularly care about the truck. They didn't particularly care about the 9mm you know, uh, pistol. They wanted specifically were obsessed with these night vision goggles. Uh, and Damien said, I have no idea where they are. I didn't even know this guy had gone AWOL until this moment. I just met him like you know, two, three days ago. They they seem to be skeptical of that, so they arrest Damien, they arrest Lee, they take them both down to the jail, they give Damien the Abu Ghraib treatment for about six or seven days, they keep grilling him, uh, they want the information, they want to know who this guy is, uh, they imply that Damien was going to try to sell these night vision goggles to some terrorist organization, to Al-Qaeda, or something like that, you know, this is, you know, a Kafka-esque Nightmare. This is like the trial oh, yeah. uh, updated to the 21st century. Uh, Damien keeps saying, I don't know anything. Uh, this guy was just sleeping on my couch. Again, they don't, they don't really believe him. And keep in mind, Damien had been in and out of jail uh, as long as I'd known him. Um, he, at one point, he spent a couple years in prison in Maryland uh, on the same cell block as uh, Mike Tyson. Damien worked in the library. He, 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 uh, Mike Tyson would come in and check out books about like the Nation of Islam. Uh, oh. And, and uh, the reason that he was on the same cell block is because uh, Damien's father is a narcotics cop. So whenever he would go to prison, they would put him on the same cell block with the protected prisoners. In other words, people whose lives were in danger from other inmates. So he'd always get uh-huh. put on the, the same cell block with the celebrities. <laughs> so, so, like, when he was in jail in L.A., he had he was on the same cell block as the Menendez brothers and O.J. Uh, oh so he ha- he had a lot of colorful colorful stories about being in prison. Um, so, uh, you know, he was not fond of cops, uh, and he was not the most cooperative person in the first place. So, even if he'd known something, he probably wouldn't have said anything to them. But in this case, he really didn't know anything, but they didn't believe him. Uh, and, they, and, they, and they kept grilling him, and then finally, after about a week, they they let him go. He comes home, he calls me, uh, and he says he tells me this incredible story, and we both thought, wow, that's wild. Can't get stranger than that. Obviously, they <laughs> realized that you didn't know anything. They came to their senses. They let you go. That's the end of it. 
a couple of days later, he calls me to tell me that he thinks he's being followed by a panoply of military-looking jarhead dudes following him down the street, down Garnett Avenue in Pacific Beach. He, he claimed, and it wasn't just like one or two people, he claimed a whole parade of these guys were following him down the street and that they weren't being sur- surreptitious about it in any way. It's almost as if they wanted him to see them. Uh, he'd go into the 7-Eleven, they'd follow him into the 7-Eleven. He'd go into the Mexican restaurant next door, they would all sit at all the booths around him. Uh, they would stand outside his kitchen window while he was making dinner and talk about him. Uh, they uh, would park outside his apartment and shine uh, the headlights through his bedroom window at 3 a.m., keeping him up, playing music in the in the car. Uh, at first, I have to admit, my, my initial reaction was that perhaps Damien was suffering from some sort of meth-induced paranoia. Now, yeah. it, d- despite the fact that you know Damien had been involved in drugs, mostly heroin, up to this point, uh, I had never seen him exhibit any signs of paranoia. I had never seen him exhibit any signs of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, anything like that. So if, in fact, he was suffering from some mental breakdown, this was new. Uh, I, I was used to his peculiar brand of madness, and this was not it. Uh, and so... I said, well, why don't you take photos of these people who are following you, or, or you say there are these cars following you all around town. Can you get photos of their license plates? I mean, you say they're parked right outside your house. Can you go out there and take a photo of the license plate? Um, he said, okay, I'll try to do that. So he did take some photographs. He sent some of them to me. He wrote some of them down. Um, and it just so happened that I had a friend who worked at the uh, DMV in, uh, up in uh, Seattle, Washington. So he ran the, the plate numbers through the DMV, and they all of them came back as non-existent, which uh, really makes no sense because I knew they existed. I'd seen the photographs of, of some of them. Uh, and uh-huh. also, if he was just being paranoid and he just thought that the next-door neighbor was following him and he wrote down that license plate number, it would come up as someone who lived in Pacific Beach in San Diego. Right. It wouldn't come up as non-existent. Uh, even if he was making up license plate numbers off the top of his head, you'd probably hit a real license plate number, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, but then, no, all every single one of them, and I have the list is in the book. Every single one of these license plate numbers was officially non-existent, which seems to me the only answer to that was that they were government vehicles. Uh, so that was the first indication. Okay, maybe he's not uh, crazy. Uh, it seems like he's telling me uh, the truth here. Um, and then the situation got stranger when he, he's describing this kind of um, odd behavior, the way they were following him, surveilling, harassing him in this, in this odd per- per- performative way. Uh, we're going out of their way to make sure that he saw them doing all this. And I had been familiar with uh, like MKUltra, uh, oh, yeah. Mind Control, that kind of thing. I had written for Paranoia Magazine. Uh, uh, my, the first article I ever published was in Paranoia Magazine in 1996. Uh, so I was well familiar with that whole milieu. But I'd never heard of this, this whole kind of gang-stalking thing, which that word didn't even exist yet. Um, the, the closest description I could find of it was uh, this woman named Raven One. She identified herself as RavenOne.net, and she had posted this article called All About Street Theater. And the, everything she described in it 
was perfectly aligned with what Damien was describing. And that was my first indication that there was that this wasn't just unique to Damien. Um, then he, he he tells me that um, you know as, as, as the weeks pass, uh, he he says that he suddenly noticed that the inside of his apartment it would seem as if his apartment was was growing, uh, that, that that his apartment was larger on the inside than on the outside, and he wasn't the only one who noticed it. Friends would come over and they say, "Is your apartment growing, Damien?" Uh, or conversely, that it was shrinking. He, he'd go inside and it seemed to be narrowing. Um, and I thought, well, I don't, that's bizarre. <laughs> you know, that's like, that's yeah. like Dr. Who's TARDIS. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and the fact that he wasn't the only one, who, it wasn't just him, you know, other, uh, in his orbit had noticed this without him prompting them. You know, they would come in and say, what the hell is your apartment growing? Um, uh, and then, uh, there was one incident that was kind of amusing. Uh, I, I said before that the two, two of these jarheads would, would sit outside his kitchen window and just talk to each other about him. They would like insult him, but talking about him as if he wasn't there. Uh, and so one day they're they're doing this. He was making lunch, so he he grabbed like a bunch of pasta and like peanut butter and some uh, uh, baking soda, Jello, and like whipped it all together into this weird slime, and then he. He ran over to, to uh, outside, and there was a fence, and then they are on the other side of the fence. He ran outside and just poured this whole thing over the fence, and it hit him on the head, and they ran off into the parking lot of the Vons next door trying to get all this crap out of their hair. Uh, the, I, now, I mentioned that for a specific reason, because uh, later on, uh, um, there was a point after Damien's gotten really worn down by all of this that um, – uh, what would happen is that Lita Johnson would show up, uh, this woman, this, uh, S, uh, the special agent from NCIS, the woman who had first come to the door, she would randomly show up at certain times. And she'd pull in with the same, like, same two goons from before or like two clones of, of the goons from before. And, and uh, all the cars that were parked outside who were you know, shining lights through his window and blaring the music, they would all pull out. And then Lita would, would, would pull in, and she'd go up to his door and knock on it, and then he'd open the door, and she'd say, are you ready to give me any information yet? Have you remembered anything? Has, you know, has your memory been jogged at all lately? And then he would say, no, because I told you the truth the first time. I don't know anything about this. And she'd say, oh, well, and she gave him her card with her phone number on it. Uh, if your memory is jogged at any point in the near future, you know, call this number. Then she gets in the car with her two goons and drives away. Immediately, all the cars would come back, and the whole harassment would start again. Well, after a time, he calls me. He says, uh, I'm going to call her, and I'm going to have a meeting with her, because he had heard uh, through some network of, of friends that maybe these night vision goggles had ended up in the hands of these uh, Hell's Angels who were going to be using them for like, drug running. Purposes in, in San Diego across the border, uh, and uh, and uh, he said maybe I can make a deal with them, and then like I could work for them or something, or and then they would stop harassing me. I go, Damien, that they're just going to think you knew this all along, <laughs> that you didn't tell them, <laughs> and now they're going to make them even angrier, or that you're holding out on them, like you're like you're blackmailing them, you know, holding them up for money or, or something. He goes, no, 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 I think that this will work. So he met with them at a bagel shop on Garnet Avenue. Uh, Lita and her superior, 
and they bought him an orange juice and a bagel. And he proposed this, and immediately uh, Lita's superior got red in the face and started pointing his sausage-like finger uh, in his face and was saying, you know, how dare you? You know, we don't need to take orders from you. Uh, who the hell do you think you are? And and the special agent, Lita Johnson, went off on this weird monologue about how she'd grown up in the San Diego Pacific Beach area and uh, uh, used to be a, a military town and a great place to live, and now... There was nothing but meth addicts and drug addicts everywhere, and the, the, the whole town needed to be cleaned up. Uh, and there's something – Damien has this kind of quality about him. It's almost like Candide uh, or like a SpongeBob kind of quality where he's kind of innocent despite the fact that he's been in and out of jail. He has this kind of like weird innocence about him where someone could be insulting right to his face and he doesn't recognize it. So she was talking about him. You know, She, she was saying people like you need to be cleaned out of – you know, my neighborhood, but he wasn't picking up on it. And he responded, Oh yeah, I know. I totally agree with you. I can't stand those meth addicts. And, uh, that'd be great. <laughs> Something could be done about them. And I can imagine her getting more and more frustrated. As she, he's not getting that. She's insulting him. <laughs> so the whole meeting just like went South. Uh, um, and, uh, the, the one point the, the superior says, uh, enjoy that bagel and orange juice I bought you, which cost like maybe, you know, four ninety five or something. And and basically told him to get lost, and and but a significant thing happened during that lunch. Um, at one point, Damien says, "Listen, I'll you know I'll help you. I'll help you find them. Just get these people off my back." He goes, "I don't want to have any more food fights with the feds." And at that point, Lita Johnson she laughed, and she said, "Oh yes, that made us all laugh." Uh, and it was the only time, except for one other moment later, that happens later where they broke the script, because the whole point of the whole gang stalking and surveillance harassment program is to make the target think they're going crazy. Isolate them from everybody else and make them think they're hallucinating or having some sort of mental breakdown. But in this case, she actually broke the script and admitted that they were watching him. That made us laugh. Yeah, when you threw the the slime (laughs) over the fence and hit those two guys, yeah, that, that made us all laugh. Um, so, so that kind of had the opposite effect of whatever they were going for, you know, because it just it confirmed that he was actually being surveilled. So he he leaves. He, he calls me and tells me what happened, and I said, you know, I told you so. I, I, that wasn't going to go well. Then then after that, uh, the electronic harassment aspect of it starts to amp up, and over the course of many months, um, Damien's losing weight. Uh, he's near the end of the whole situation. We're talking by like January of 2004. He's urinating blood. Um, he's got this metallic taste in his mouth, which I knew. I, I had been friends with uh, Walter Boart. Walter Boart wrote the book Operation Mind Control, which was published in 1978, the first uh, really important book about MK Ultra and the CIA. Uh, the CIA's mind control experiments on American citizens. So I knew from from Walter that the the taste, the metallic taste in the mouth, was a, a symptom of uh, electromagnetic poisoning. Um, yeah. And so they were bombarding him with uh, hallucinations. Uh, I guess you could say that's not really the proper term for it, but uh, that's at first that's how he interpreted it. He was he called me and told me that he was seeing uh, people in his 
house uh, who were not there. Uh, he was interacting with entities in his house who he could not see, invisible people. And he said that he described them as being um, very small. Uh, the reason being, there was one time when he was in the bathroom, and he opened up the medicine cabinet on his, in the bathroom, and as it was in motion, as the mirror on the, on the bathroom medicine cabinet was in motion, he was able to see a kind of a weird outline of someone behind him, and it was a small person. Uh, and, and sometimes he said they would appear as he would see the, the little auras in the air, like little dots, little like flashing dots in the air. And he could see that they were, they were small uh, and that there were people there. And sometimes he couldn't see them at all, but he would feel them. They'd push him over. Um, one, one time one of them fell out of a tree outside the apartment. And, you know, you could see, boom, the, the impact as uh, the person fell. Um, they were doing things like, oh, one time he was at the beach and he saw uh, tracks in the sand of like a vehicle following him. But there was no vehicle, but he could see the tracks in the sand. Um, uh, at one point, they projected this uh, shadow on the wall when he was trying to go to sleep. On, on the wall of his bedroom, they projected a, a silhouette of a hand with a gun in it, and the hand would tilt down until the gun was pointing at his head, and then like tilt up again and tilt down again. Um, at one point, he saw this like massive black amorphous energy crawl across his bedroom floor, and he had his leather jacket on the carpet. The, the, this amorphous massive energy kind of crawled into the leather jacket, and he watched the leather jacket kind of fill out with this energy, and then, then the leather jacket crawled across the floor. Um, uh, and, then, uh, and then something happened, which is very interesting. Uh, the first person who ever interviewed me about Camellia was Tessa Dick, uh, the widow of Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer who wrote uh -huh. A Scanner Darkly and Vallis and so many other classic works of science fiction. Um, she told me during that first interview, this was back in 2015, she said, oh, this book explains uh, a lot of the experiences that I had with Phil in Orange County back in the 70s. In other words, like this was the first book she read where she, where she saw accounts of things that had happened to her and Phil. Uh, like, for example, she and Phil Dick uh, would hear voices coming out of the radio that was not plugged into the wall, and the voices would insult Phil. Um, uh, and one of the things she said that was similar to her own experiences was uh, I, re I talk in here about how everyone in the apartment building moved out, and a whole bunch of new people moved in, and these people would join in on the, on the harassment uh, and uh, that happened. That happened to Tessa Dick and Phil Dick in in Orange County back in the 70s. Uh, so all this stuff is going on, um, and uh, Lita Johnson would show up again. You know, have you changed your mind? Um, and 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 uh, I decided, as I recall, you might recall, I mentioned that she gave him uh, her her business card with her phone number on it, and I said, well, Damien. Yeah. Give me your phone number. Uh, I, I want to call her. Now, one was was to just to verify that she existed. <laughs> I mean, I, I I mean there was so, some still some small part of my mind wondering if if uh, this woman actually existed, uh, uh, and uh, I didn't really think he was 
lying or hallucinating in any way, but uh, I just wanted to confirm it, you know. Uh, and also to talk to her, you know, see, hear what she had to say about all this. So he gives me the phone number, and uh, I call her, and that, the transcript of that conversation is in the book. And she did not react well to me calling her. Uh, her attitude was kind of like, how dare you ask me any questions about any of this? But I said, you know, my friend Damien claims that you're following him. Uh, what do you have to say about that? And and she said, she implied that he was crazy. She said, she, And every response she gave me was a kind of uh, uh, CYA kind of, lawyer-like way of answering the question, and nothing was straightforward. She would say, oh, no one in my agency is currently following your friend. Like that, you know, which is probably a true statement. Yeah, no one in her agency is currently following him. That, you know, yeah. That's probably true. <laughs> you know? uh, uh, and she, I asked her, well, uh, if you're not, if you don't have him under surveillance and you're not interested in him, uh, is it okay if he leaves town? Because I thought at this point he should just bail, just yeah. get out of town, and, and maybe everything would be okay. And a, a lot of people mistakenly think that that's the way to handle the situation. I said, is it okay if he just leaves? And she said, oh, no, I don't think that would be a good idea. And I said, well, well why? If you're not interested in him and you're, you don't have him under surveillance, why do you care if he leaves? She said, well, it just might make things difficult later on, uh, which you know makes no sense. Um, the the conversation did not end well. You know, she implied that he was crazy. Um, I I called him, and uh, I I said, you know, you should just. I think you should just leave at this point. At around this time, Damien's uh, wallet goes missing uh, from his apartment, and he had been planning on buying a van. He had met this beachcomber guy at the beach who had this black van that he just wanted to get rid of. And Damien, he wanted like 500 bucks for it or something like that. And so Damien was just going to go home, give him, give him the money, and, and just pile things into the van and take off. Well, he gets home, the, the wallet's gone. And around this time, very bizarre thing happens. He has, I, I couldn't get a hold of him for about three days. And uh, I finally get a hold of him, and he had missing time. He, he couldn't remember where he'd been. For the past three days, oh, wow. but he had this kind of odd waking dream, as he described it, of lying on the, sitting on the couch and suddenly going to sleep, and then this kind of vague memory of people coming into the house, and and another uh, memory of him crossing his arms over his chest, trying to prevent these men from pulling his arms away from him, and then injecting him with something. In the arm. Now, as I mentioned before, Damien, I think Damien had, had uh, first experimented with heroin like in high school. So he wasn't afraid of needles. So this was the only time I ever heard him. <laughs> you know, a, a typical Damien nightmare would not be, would not involve needles. You know, he, he was not yeah. afraid of needles. But, but the way he described it as this kind of weird, he didn't know if it was a dream or not. You know, then his wallet went missing. Uh, he's urinating blood. He's lost a lot of weight. Uh, I said, okay, um, I didn't tell him this, but I decided that I was just going to send him, I was going to Western Union him the money. So I did it without asking him. I just went down to Western Union. I, I, I sent him the, the, enough money to buy the van, and I call him on the phone, uh, and I go, uh, 
he answers the phone. I said, listen, uh, I, I sent you the money. It's at Western Union. Let me give you the password. If you've ever Western Union somebody something, you know, they give them a password so that they can pick up the money. Uh, and uh, so I was about to give him the password, and the phone just cuts off. And then, uh, uh, so I try to call him back. I call him back, and I'm about to give him the password. The phone cuts off again. This happened like a half a dozen times uh, in a row. And then finally, I remembered something about a, a, a collect call. I decided to call and collect. And w- when you make a collect call, there's a, a brief moment there, or at least this used to be the case. There's a brief moment there where the operator will ask the other person, you know, will you accept the charges? And while they're talking, you can hear each other. So when the woman said, will you accept the charges, I yelled out a hint as to what the password was, which I, which I can't even uh, tell you because it's pornographic in nature. But I knew that he would know what the password was if I if I blurted out this sentence, which you can – if you read the book, you'll see what it is. Uh, so I did that. I could hear him laugh for half a second, and then it cut off. Uh, and then so he knew what the password was. He went, he picked up the money. Um, and he got the van. He piled a bunch of stuff in the van. He left a note on the door saying, "I've gone west," which would be into the ocean. Uh, yeah. And then he and, and he drove. He just he left town. Uh, this is January of 2004 now. Uh, and he calls me um, now a few hours after he left to tell me that there are these little flying saucers following him. Now, at the time, 2003, drones did not exist, or rather, right. they did not exist in, you know, in public life. This was this was more of a science fictional thing. Now, there's drones flying over Dodger Stadium. Uh, I, you know, I was at the beach not long ago, and a drone flew right over us. You know, everyone has drones. 2003, that was not the case. He's describing to me these little, what he described as little flying saucers that that are following the van. Uh, he goes all the way into Texas. Uh, he drives into uh, Minnesota. Um, and when he was in Minnesota, he stops off at this bathroom. Uh, and when he goes into the bathroom, he's washing his hands, and a guy comes in and is washing his hands at the sink right next to him. And this guy turns to him and says, um, if you would just give the stuff back, this would all end. Uh, and Damien's immediately freaked out by this. And he, the guy said yeah. it not in a threatening way. It, it wasn't a threatening way. It was more in a pleading way. It was like, please give the stuff back so we don't have to follow you anymore. It, it was almost like the guy, <laughs> the guy wanted to move <laughs> on to a new assignment or something. Like It was almost as if he was stunned that Damien was still alive. Uh, please, could you just give this all back? As soon as he says that, the second guy comes in, grabs the first guy by the collar, and drags him out, as, as if the guy had done something he wasn't supposed to do. Because they they tell uh-huh. these people don't interact with the target. Uh, there have been numerous times that that's how Damien proved to himself that he was being followed. There was one point where he was at a, a supermarket back in San Diego, and he was in, he was in line, and a guy gets behind him. Uh, and is doing all this weird, getting up really close to him, like sh- taking things out of his basket, you know, uh, pushing, pushing up against him. So Damien gets out of line and gets uh, grabs one of those like aluminum foil, the the uh, the long like tubes 
of aluminum foil yeah. uh, c- comes up behind him and starts poking him in the butt. <laughs> and the guy, <laughs> the guy is just, he's not doing anything. He didn't respond. Like, in normal reality, you would turn around and go, what the hell are you doing? And, and maybe yeah. punch him in the face. Guy didn't do anything. Similar experience uh, early on. Damien thought he was being followed by this real military-looking guy. He goes into a Salvation Army, went into, you know, AM, PM, uh, uh, and he, Damien gets one of those, like, huge 32-ounce things, of, of like a blue raspberry slushie. And yeah. um, in the middle of the street, the guy is following him. Damien turns around and throws the slushie into his face. Uh, and and calls him a a pejorative word uh, that some people use for homosexuals, <laughs> which <laughs> a word that would tend to piss off uh, alpha male military jarhead dudes. Uh, yeah. The guy did nothing. The guy did absolutely nothing. Just just kind of growled, stood at him, stared at him uh, with with the, with the look of the you know the, the children in the village of the damned. And it did absolutely nothing. When in reality, you know, the guy would have said, what did you call me? <laughs> and uh, right. I would have uh, popped him one that didn't happen because they're told not to, not to engage. Uh, and so this guy obviously broke protocol. That was the second time that they broke the script and actually admitted to the fact that Damien was being surveilled. So that, that uh-huh. incident in the bathroom really creeped out Damien. And he, and, he, and he makes a beeline out of there. He gets back into his van, and uh, he drives all the way uh, somewhere in Kansas. And uh, the, the van breaks down, and in the middle of the night, I get a phone call like 10 o'clock at night. And a guy, I pick up the phone, I say, hello? And it's this guy with like a southern accent. And he goes, he goes do you know Damien? And... And immediately I think, what is, what is it now? Like, what yeah. what could possibly be occurring now? And and I go, yeah, I know Damien. And he goes, he goes, this guy, he goes, we picked him up his van, broke down the side of the road, uh, we brought him back to our house, and he uh, he says he's being followed. Is that true? Uh, and and I say, yeah, that's true. He goes, you a professor? And I go, yeah, I, I teach at CSU Long Beach. And I proceed to tell the guy that, yes, everything that Damien has told you is true. As I'm talking to him, the other guy, there were two guys who picked up Damien. The other guy yells out to, you know, Bo or Jeb or whatever the hell his name was, hey, uh, come, uh, uh, look outside the window. So the guy I'm talking to runs over the window, and he tells me while I'm talking to him that there's a little flying saucer hovering outside <laughs> The house that followed them from the side of the road where the van broke down. Now this this convinced them that in fact Damien was telling the truth, uh, and I, I managed to convince them to, to like give him gas and fix the van so that they could, he could move on, uh, which he did. And he ends up in Winona, Kansas, which is this little town that's got like 200 people in it. And when he gets to Winona, for some reason the surveillance uh, stops uh, for. A little while, and I don't know if this is because the town was so small that you couldn't get away with a parade of jarheads following you through the middle of town. Like people would notice that, uh, or uh, you know, everyone in Winona, Kansas, has guns. So uh, I, I've, I've, I've since learned that the people who wear these invisibility suits or optical camouflage suits they don't protect you from being hit by a bullet. So maybe that was why they they, they pulled back for a little bit. Um, 
for about two months or so, Damien doesn't experience anything. Uh, he actually gets a job in Winona, Kansas, kind of settles down there. <clears throat> he's able to get a, a computer, and he's looking on the Internet to try to find anything that looks at all like what he experienced in San Diego with this invisibility thing. And he, he looks up, he finds some stuff about Professor Tashi, this Japanese researcher who created something called like an invisibility cloak. And there's all these articles that like tie it into Harry Potter and all this stuff. But it looks really rather primitive because it only uh, makes you invisible from one angle. What he saw was not that. And what he saw was 360 degrees, you know. Uh, and um, finally he stumbles across this website called Camellio.net which is this website by this guy named Richard Schoengert. And Damien's looking at it, and he's reading the information about the patent and everything, and he calls me and he says, this sounds more like what I saw. You should look at this website. So I go over there and I look at it, and I'm surprised to see that this Richard Schoengert says he's a 33rd degree Freemason in the Scottish Rite, and that his lodge is the Scottish Rite Lodge in Long Beach on Elm Street. Ninth and Elm in Long Beach. Well, that's my lodge. Uh, uh, and I, I suddenly real. And, and he also mentions that he has an interest in Rosicrucianism and uh, UFOs. Uh, and I, I think, well, this is really strange. Like, I must have met this guy at some point, but I don't remember it. So I email him. There's a contact information there. I email him. I say, hey, I'm a writer. I've done interviews with people. You know, I've written for New Dawn magazine and about strange subjects. And I said I'd love to interview you. Uh, and maybe because I was, you know, and I told him I'm in your lodge. I, I'm part of the Scottish Rite Lodge. Perhaps because I, I was in the same lodge, he was willing to be interviewed. And he said, sure, meet me at the lodge on on Saturday morning. So uh, I call Damien. I go, hey, this guy is gonna. Meet, I'm gonna interview him. And Damien drives all the way down from uh, Winona, Kansas, to Long Beach. Uh, and I met Richard uh, on a Saturday morning, and there were, there were rituals to be performed uh, that, that Saturday morning. After all that was done, uh, I, I met Richard and realized that, yes, indeed, I had met him before, but never been formally introduced to him. I remembered seeing him perform in one of the rituals. Uh, and uh, so... I, me and Damien, I introduced him to Damien. This is my friend. We took him over to a Greek restaurant uh, in Long Beach and then, uh, for lunch. Then afterwards, we took him to my office on campus, and we sat down, interviewed him for about two and a half hours, maybe longer. That entire conversation is in the book. Now, in my mind, I thought it's very unlikely that anything this guy tells us is going to tie in to Damien's situation. I mean, my expectations were extremely low that it was very unlikely that this was going to have anything to do <laughs> with Damien's experiences. <laughs> uh, uh, he he starts talking, and within 10 minutes, he, he just volunteers stuff that dovetails perfectly with everything that Damien has already told me in the past. Uh, I, we didn't even need to prompt him. He just he just starts mentioning, he, all, out of the blue, he starts talking about he, how he thinks that the, that the, the Navy – ripped off his technology, how he had met with a corporation called SAIC, uh, Science Applications International Corporation, which was located in San Diego within walking distance 
of Damien's apartment in Pacific Beach. At that time, it has since moved and split into two, SAIC and Lidos. And SAIC is now in Virginia, or a perfect place for it. Um, uh, but but uh, he, uh, Richard said that representatives of SAIC had met with him 10 years earlier and wanted to see his Camellio technology. Now, this is Richard has a top secret clearance, or did until he retired uh, a few years ago. Uh, and and this was a private project he was working on with a fellow scientist named Dr. Lev Berger, who's an eminent physicist uh, and has a lab up in Hemet, California, which is like a desert town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I, I've been to that lab. I've met Lev Berger. There's photos in his house of him shaking hands with Richard Nixon. <laughs> so this guy is like an eminent physicist. Okay, so Berger and Schongert had joined forces, and they had done many presentations at, um, or, or several presentations uh, at various conferences, um, uh, military conferences, to show off, you know, cutting edge technology, and they were trying to get funding for for Camellio. Uh and. Uh, so SAIC had met with them, and also representatives of the Navy had met with them, and they would—they seemed very interested. Uh, uh, and then, with suddenly, both of them just like disappeared, even though they were on the verge of uh, of offering them a contract. Uh, and that was ten years earlier. And so he, Richard just volunteers that he has hired a lawyer to look into whether or not his technology has been stolen, and he says he suspects that it, that's been. Uh, appropriated for the super soldier program uh, that the military is involved with. Keep in mind, this conversation is occurring in 2006 at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he mentions that um, he, he volunteers that one of the um, uh, ways that the optical camouflage technology can be used is for psychological warfare purposes. Uh, he says, uh, you could make someone think they're seeing something that's not there. You could make a tree look like an elephant. Uh, you could you could make someone think that the room they're in is growing or or getting smaller. Uh, just just mentions that out of the blue. Uh, um, he, everything he said dovetailed perfectly with with what Damien had already told me. Um, and uh, at one point after he's been speaking for about an hour or so, I, I finally turned to Damien and say, well, maybe it's time you tell Richard your your story. And at first, Richard looked a little wary, like like maybe we were about to sandbag him with something. Um, and so Damien starts telling the story. And at first, Richard looked a little suspicious or, or almost as if maybe we were accusing him of something. <laughs> you know? And uh, <laughs> then when Damien got to the part about the medicine cabinet and how he could see them for a second when the when the mirror was in motion, and then particularly uh -huh. when Damien said that he would sometimes see them as these little auras. And Damien said uh, it's, it's almost like um, people who suffer from intense migraine headaches will sometimes see these auras in the air. He said it looked like that. It looked like these little flashes of light. Um, uh -huh. and, and Richard leaned forward, and he goes, that's exactly what it looks like when the technology is not working properly. Uh, wow. And 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 Richard knew that Damien did not was not a physicist, and and would and certainly was not an optical physicist, and would not know that. Uh, who would know that? Uh, you know. Um, and Richard's describing how the technology is a, it's a you know it could be used in a skin tight suit with these lenses 
that reflect the the environment around them. Ironically, uh, I've been told, though I haven't seen it, there is a Universal did a remake of The Invisible Man, uh, which features a woman who's being harassed by a man who's wearing the exact type of suit that I described in the book and have described in many interviews since <laughs> 2015. Wow. And somehow, mysteriously, that element ends up in this in this film. The remake of The Invisible Man, which of course has nothing to do with the original H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. Um, um, uh, so that's interesting. Um, and, uh, I, and I talk about in the book of Richard being contacted by people in Hollywood wanting to to use his technology in their films, particularly a, a G.I. Joe film that featured a, an invisibility suit. They had contacted him. The James Bond, uh, people make James Bond at one point spoke to him about wanting him to be an advisor of one of their films, which featured an invisible car. Uh, I think it was one of the Pierce Brosnan films. Uh, the, um, uh, so when, 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 when Richard heard that, uh, he knew Damien, this was, he wasn't BSing. By the end of the uh, interview, uh, Richard was convinced that, uh, yes, they had, they had ripped him off. Uh, and were and he said, I think that, um, they needed to test this out on someone, and they chose you, uh, either because, A, you pissed them off, or B, it was convenient, or maybe because people wouldn't believe you because you have this background of being a heroin addict, of having been homeless. He was homeless in D.C. He was in prison, uh, a history of being a drug addict. Uh, if he, For the most part, these types of people are so marginalized that they don't even know anyone who would listen to them. Uh, it was just an absolute coincidence and synchronicity that, that Damien's best friend happened to be a guy who was an English professor who also wrote for Paranoia Magazine, knew Walter Boart, who wrote Operation Mind Control, and was a member of the same lodge as the guy from whom they stole the technology. <laughs> I don't, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell once said, synchronicity is the way of showing that you're on the right path. Uh, there's just no way you could predict that. <laughs> so most people, like if they had picked anyone else to experiment on, and who knows how many people they have experimented on, it wasn't just Damien. There are other people Damien knew in San Diego who also experienced this kind of harassment. Most of those people would not know someone who would be able to put this together. Um, uh, so, and and also, like I said, one of the main reasons, one of the main purposes of this whole gang stalking, surveillance, harassment operation is to isolate isolate, alienate the target so that, uh, you know, they, they go, they tell their friends or their family what's happening to them. Immediately they think they're crazy. They either cut off communication or maybe they even go to the extent of trying to have them, them hospitalized, you know, put into a psych Absolutely. ward. I've, I've talked to a number of people that, that that's happened to. Um, uh, and, it's, and it's clear from talking to them that they, they should not have been hospitalized. You know, I mean, that's not to say that everyone who sees invisible people is sane, <laughs> you know, but uh, you, you have to take this by a case-by-case basis. And I've, I've been contacted by many people since the book was published in 2015 where it's clear that I'm talking, you know, I've, I've met these people face-to-face. I've communicated with them over the phone. Um, uh, it's clear you're talking to a sane, rational person. Uh, you know, uh, you can tell within 10 minutes if you're talking to someone who's unhinged. And and so uh, you know uh, when 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 Damien left the interview that day after we finished it, he seemed a little. Uh, I thought he would be happy to know that he wasn't crazy, but it kind of had the opposite <laughs> effect 
and, and, and if you think about it, this is kind of a reasonable reaction. I think he was holding out hope that he was crazy because that could be easily fixed. You can take a pill, not easily, but but you can you can yeah. either take medicine or you could see you know a therapist or something to to deal with the problem, right? If if he's not crazy, there's no easy way to fix the situation. Um that's an insurmountable problem. Uh and so he actually seemed to get a little depressed uh afterwards. Um and we I lost contact with him for a couple of years and I was actually happy to not have to think about it for a while because <laughs> it's kind of an overwhelming <laughs> thing. And uh, I actually kind of pushed it back to the back of my mind. Uh, and what brought, what brought it all forward again was, was another chance encounter. I was, I was teaching a literature of science fiction class in 2010 uh, at CSU Long Beach. And one day I left the class. One of my students says to me, can you think of something that most people think of as science fiction, but it's not? And I, I had to think about it for a second. I said, oh, well, invisibility. You know, we think of that as science fiction, invisible man, et cetera. Uh, but uh, actually, um, there is optical camouflage technology that is essentially the same as invisibility technology. Uh, and he said, what, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, let me tell you a story. Uh, and I told him you know, a shortened version of what I just told you. And uh, his head was spinning. Uh, and he said, you got to tell the story in class, uh, ne- next class. I go, okay, you remind me, and, and I'll tell the story. In the next class, uh, he reminds me, and so I tell the whole class the story. In my class, there just happens to be a guy who's an ROTC student. So he, every day he would come to class in full like military garb. Uh, he was always very like formal with me. You know, He would say, sir. You know, I remember one time he said to me uh, after class, he said, I'm really enjoying your class because when I'm in the ROTC, um, we're taught not to question anything. But your class is all about questioning everything. Uh, and it's, it's like a, a refreshment from being in the ROTC classes. And I, I said, well, that's, that's a high compliment. Well, I'm in the class. I'm telling the story. He, uh, there's a sort of like stunned faces on my students the ROTC guy raises his hand he says sir uh, I just I, I can't say anything in particular but I I can say that what you're telling me um, aligns with certain things that what we've been told uh, in in our ROTC classes <laughs> and then the, 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 the more skeptical students sort of looked around like what huh you're like what's going on <laughs> Um, so after that class, I sat down in the hallway. I just sat down. I pulled out my notebook, and I wrote down. It was kind of like um, the story was so overwhelming and had so many moving parts to it. I couldn't even figure out how you would begin telling it. Um, but having talked it out and told it to my students, I thought, okay, I'll just write down bullet points of everything I said in the order I said it in. And so, so I probably filled up like two pages of a, of a spiral-bound notebook. Uh, and then later after the semester ended, because that was spring of 2010, when the semester ended, I sat down and I, I wrote Camellio uh, probably in about uh, two months, like the rough draft of it, um, following uh-huh. that outline. That I, I followed that outline precisely. Uh, 
I had notebooks that I kept at the time. Uh, there were tapes I had made where I would um, – I had taped myself talking to other people about it while it was happening. In other words, uh, I didn't have the technology to record a conversation, but I could record my end. So I just recorded myself talking to other people about it, and I was able to listen to those tapes and remember the exact order that things had happened the exact day. Uh, uh, and those were, that was extremely helpful in reconstructing the, the timeline. You know, and then I had I had Richard's input. Um, I, 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 had, I had published a shortened version of the interview with Richard in UFO magazine in 2007. Um, uh, William Burns, uh, his wife, uh, Nancy Burns, uh, she was editing UFO magazine, and she published a shortened version of it. And ostensibly, you might think, well, what's the connection? Why would an interview with Richard Schoengert about optical camouflage technology be in UFO magazine? But I wanted it there because um of something that Damien had said to me at one point he said if i if i didn't have any context for what was happening to me in other words if i had, if i had not been arrested if if Lita Johnson had never come to my door and given me her card <clears throat> or any of that i would think that i was interacting with aliens or yeah. that the that my apartment was haunted and i've talked to other people who are alien abductees and they've told me that um people like Melinda Leslie who's a researcher into my lab's military abductions and is an abduction uh -huh. researcher. Uh, uh, Misha Johnson, uh, who's also uh, claims to be an abductee. Uh, they, they've told me that the story about the, the amorphous black energy crawling across the bedroom floor, filling up the leather jacket and the jacket crawling across the floor, when I told that story to them, they, were, I, they said, we've, we've seen that exact thing and, and we've met dozens of other people who have seen that. Uh -huh. So so I, I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, I mean, how many people who uh, think they're alien abductees are actually the victims of this technology? Uh, that's not to say that every single UFO report can be explained by this because there are UFO reports that go back hundreds of years, you know, if you read the books of Charles Fort, et cetera. Oh, yeah. Um, but, however, uh, it does seem to me uh, as if someone is using, uh, exploiting the ufology uh, mythos uh, for national security purposes as a cover for experimenting with this type of technology. Uh, I, I, I appeared on uh, Coast to Coast AM with George Knapp not long after the book was published because um, I had sent a copy of the book to uh, Jacques Ballet. And uh -huh. uh, Jacques Vallée showed it to Colm Kelleher, who co-wrote the Skinwalker book with George Knapp. Kelleher called uh -huh. Knapp and said, you should have this guy on the air. Uh, <laughs> uh, because, uh, And then I, I read the Skinwalker book and was amazed at how many parallels there were between the phenomenon that was being described as having occurred at the Skinwalker Ranch with the phenomenon that was occurring to Damien in San Diego. Uh, and Knapp agreed that one of the theories uh, as to what was occurring at the ranch was that it was a cover for this kind of experimentation. Uh, where better place to experiment with such technology than at a place that has a reputation for being haunted um, and, in fact, for being a, a hotspot for paranormal activity. And it's, this is an interesting footnote. 
not long, I think it was in 2008, uh, my friend and I drove down to San Diego to where Damien had lived. Uh, and I had spent time there. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd spent the night there over at his apartment. I knew the, the area. Uh, we drove from there to SAIC to see how close it was, and it was it was very close. Uh, the SAIC Corporation was located right across the street from the Old Town area from a house called the Whaley House. Uh, the Whaley House has a reputation as being the most haunted house in California. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that SAIC, the same corporation that had contacted Richard about the Camilo technology, had decided to build their headquarters right across the street from the most haunted house in California. Was that a coincidence? Or, you know, and that's not to say that the ghostly phenomenon that was there was being caused by SAIC back in 1899. That doesn't make any sense. However, is there something about the location, the geography, uh, that they wanted to exploit? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it could be on ley lines, or they could be over a portal. It could be... You know, the, certainly the electromagnetic energy there would have um, built upon whatever technology they were using. Absolutely. Like, you know, as John Keel talks about, window areas, you know, in the Mothman uh-huh. prophecies. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I mentioned Melinda, uh, Melinda Leslie, earlier. Um, be, I mentioned her in the last chapter of the book because I had gone to see uh, one of her lectures at Orange County MUFON, which is in Costa Mesa, ironically not that far from where Richard lives. Uh-huh. And um, uh, before the lecture, a bunch of us went out to dinner, uh, and I happened to be sitting next to Melinda. Uh, so striking up a conversation, I was began to tell her about Damien's experiences. Uh, now, I didn't um, – I, I, before – I even got into it. I just mentioned Pacific Beach, San Diego. I started telling her a little bit about Damien's experiences, and then Melinda suddenly says, does this tie into SAIC? Now, <laughs> that, that, that's really – most people are not walking around with SAIC floating at the forefront of their consciousness. That's just not <laughs> – most people would not just, like, bust out with SAIC, you know. But she did because uh, she had researched all these MyLab Phenomenon, and some some of the listeners may not know that my lab stands for military abduction, and that some alien abductees claim that after having been returned by the aliens, they are then reabducted by the military, and often the experiences that they have with the at the hands of the military are far worse than the experiences they had with the aliens, which tells you something interesting right there. Um, and so, uh, she Melinda's investigated hundreds of these MyLab cases, spoken to them, interviewed them. Uh, And uh, she said that in a lot of these cases, for some reason, SAIC would pop up. Either the person would have uh, some sort of connection to SAIC, a direct connection, or a family member would, uh, or or the incident occurred in San Diego. Uh, And uh, it's interesting, she told me about an incident that happened to her in San Diego, uh, she and her partner, Misha uh, Johnson, uh, they had appeared on Coast to Coast back in the year 2000. It was when Mike Siegel was hosting the show. It was between Art Bell and, and when uh, George Norrie took over. 
uh-huh. and uh, they had been on the air talking about their their experiences with alien abductees, reptilians, all of my labs, all this stuff. The next morning, they were to leave San Diego and drive up to San Francisco for a UFO conference. And Melinda said that she was getting ready. She was in the bathroom. She was blow-drying her hair. And she suddenly she turned on the faucet without wanting to do so and began to hold the hair dryer under the running water uh, while it was plugged in. And she didn't want to be doing that. And inside her head, she was saying, don't do that, don't do that. But her, her arm did it anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, and then at the last possible moment, she was able to like pull back uh, on it. And um, she said that Misha had a similar experience where she was driving, and, and she said her foot went on the gas and and started to propel her through a red light. And in her head, she was like, I don't want to be doing this. Uh, and then finally, she was able to regain control. Melinda said she had another similar experience where she parked on top of a parking structure and started to walk off towards the edge as if to jump off. At the last second, she was able to pull back. This has happened to Damien. Uh, since since uh, the book was written, uh, I've been in intermittent contact with Damien. He's, uh, at one point, he ended up in the Lost Coast area uh, in Humboldt. Um, uh-huh. If you've ever seen a documentary called Murder Mountain, <laughs> you'll know the area where he was living <laughs> with, his, with his mom. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of uh, hemp is is grown up there, you know, marijuana, uh, illegal marijuana gardens up there. Uh-huh. And so Damien uh, ends up there, and the second he gets there, these drones start following him around. Well, these marijuana, uh, uh, these these marijuana farmers thought that they were drones that were like spying on them. So they pulled out their uh, rifles and started shooting these things out of the sky. <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> the, Damien didn't have the heart to tell them all, you know, they're just here for me. You know, this happens all the time, you know. You get used to it. Uh, and uh, and while he was there, um, the the EM radiation thing started to happen again. Like he particularly noticed he, his dog, Bruce, was sort of wasting away. So he moved away uh-huh. from there. He was in San Francisco for a time. Then he ends up in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, he gets an apartment with some other people. And in retrospect, I, I, I think that the people he, got, he was living with maybe – were actually his harassers. <laughs> uh, oh but at one point, at one point, he tells me that he was uh, making a jar of iced tea. You know, you you set it on the windowsill and you wait for it uh, um, to be done. And after yeah. hours of waiting, finally it was done, and he unscrewed it and he poured it over his own head for no reason. Like he didn't want to be doing that. You know. Uh, then uh, later that day, uh, or soon afterwards, he was in his bedroom. And he just propelled himself out of the bed and ran right into into the wall. Um, and his the computer went crashing on the floor. His roommates come in. They go, "What the hell happened?" And you know he didn't want to say, "Well, I just felt myself being propelled into the wall." How do you explain that? He just said, "Well, I tripped and fell." Uh, but th- that's very similar to you know this the story that Melinda told me, and and Misha as well. So it's interesting that these sort of remote influencing uh, situations occur both in a situation, as in Damien's case, which is a, a, a clearly a gang-stalking, surveillance, harassment, government situation. You know, he, Damien doesn't claim to be an alien abductee. Uh, but then you have the same phenomenon <laughs> happening with Melinda and Misha, who are 
uh, who do claim to be alien abductees. So it's, it's these kinds of uh, correlations that, that fascinate me. Well, yeah, and I think, too, a, a lot of the things that were happening were intensified whenever he was around Army bases. And, it, you know, that would make sense if, if it was technology that the Army or, or the military was using, that, that, that possibly the base would be um, the, the source, the, the place where a signal or, or energy was sent out. Um, I think when when we spoke earlier, you you uh, I, I mentioned to you that I had a friend in Virginia who experienced seeing um, seeing a whole um, scenario, a whole buildings and everything else in places where there were no buildings, and yet she knew that 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 uh, what she was looking at was an open field, but it wasn't. It it was it was a whole. Um, Gosh, a complex of some sort that was being put up on her, you know, in her, on her screen, so to speak. And she literally pulled off the, the side of the road and, and waited a while, and and you know, closed her eyes and said, "I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy." And when she opened them again, it was okay. But that that's happened to her a number of times, and they are right by military bases in Virginia. That's interesting. Uh, a similar experience happened to a woman who I interviewed for a great length of time. Um, she's a former actress uh, from Hollywood. She lived uh, in Los Angeles for a long time, and in the late 90s, she um, was right on the, the cutting edge of publishing electronic books. And uh, she had made a lot of money publishing this, this e-book. In, we're talking about like 1999. Uh, it was a guide to where you could go in Mexico to get drugs cheaper than in the United States. Uh, uh-huh. So all these drugs that the pharmaceutical companies, you know, charge up the butt for, you could go to Mexico and she would say, here, this is where you go. These are the pharmacies in Mexico just right across the border where you can go and get the drugs much cheaper. Uh, she she was making a lot of money selling this ebook. Um, and after doing this, she started experiencing this kind of uh, harassment similar same in fact she also experienced the, the invisibility technology she had people interacting with her actually sexually harassed her uh, um, and and she said there was one point where she was driving home she knew she was in the right neighborhood she couldn't find her house her house wasn't there and she knew she was in the right neighborhood but it was she knew she was in the right spot but it wasn't the right spot the, you know, she, everything was different, and and so she yeah. was kind of like driving around. You know, it's like you're in the twilight zone all of a sudden, and then and then finally it lifted, and she found herself back where she was supposed to be, uh, which is also interesting in in this sense. Um, George Knapp, when I was on a show, sent a copy of the book to David Politis, who does the Missing 411 books, uh-huh. but people who go missing in the woods. Uh, and uh, in fact, a number of people have told me that they bought Camellio because they heard Politis mention it in various interviews. He yeah, had various interviews. He will say, "You, you might, you might want to read this book, Camellio," um, uh, because um, I, I, I was um, uh, a reader who read Camellio sent me a link to this interesting podcast uh, called "The Existence of Strange Things," and there was a a, a man and a woman 
who had experienced this strange um, event. Uh, uh, So the the woman and her husband and her two kids were on vacation during the summer, and they ended up on this road in the forest, and they got lost. And they were trying to figure out how to get back on the main road. They ended up pulling into this roadside rest area. And the woman takes the daughter into the bathroom, and the husband goes to find the, the men's bathroom. And the husband sees this invisible man climbing over the fence. In other words, he's invisible, but he's sort of shimmering, and you could tell uh-huh. that the guy was wearing some kind of a uniform, but it was like a predator type of technology, uh, which, which, by the way, Richard mentions explicitly in the book. He mentions the Predator film and saying, and he says at one point, I don't know who they had working for them in optics, but they had it really down pat uh, in that movie as to what it looks like. Ironically, it, it later turns out that the guy who won an Academy Award, the, the, the special effects team that won an Academy Award for uh, the Predator movie, w- w- J. Allen Hynek's son was among the uh, special effects artists working on Predator. J. Allen Hynek, of course, the, the eminent ufologist. Yeah. That, that's an interesting connection. Uh, so anyway, getting back to this experience, the guy's going to look for his, the bathroom, and he sees this predator-like thing crawling over this fence uh, and approaches the man. Uh, meanwhile, the wife is waiting outside this other bathroom while the daughter is inside. Uh, the wife is looking at the landscape, and she's thinking how beautiful it looks, and she said it looked like a Bob Ross painting, right? Uh-huh. As she gets closer, she can see the seams in the landscape. In other words, it wasn't really there. Uh, and she, she wanted to get closer to it. At that moment, her daughter starts screaming and runs out of the bathroom. And she goes, Mommy, there's something in the bathroom. And she describes this like shimmering person that was in the bathroom with her, with the girl. So at that moment, the the husband comes running around the corner and he says, there's an invisible man over here. Like, we got to get the hell out of here. So they get into the truck and drive away. Now, uh, the way they presented this on the show was first the wife told her side of the story, then the husband told his side. So you got it from both angles. Uh, uh-huh. So it was really it was really interesting. So I sent this to uh, Richard, and I said, Richard, you should listen to this interview. And um, he said, it sounds to me like there was some sort of emergency that occurred in the forest, and they needed to like quickly throw up some sort of optical camouflage to hide whatever it was they were doing. Um, and it, you know, if it was a permanent installation, they could they could do it much better than that. But but it would have to be much more sophisticated than than what was described. So um, I remember the woman saying that she had this urge um, as the husband was like dragging her away, uh, and the the, uh, the husband was like going, "We've got to get the hell out of here," and but meanwhile, the woman had this this curiosity to see what was behind that screen. But her husband dragged her away before she could she could do it. And um, it's probably good they didn't investigate further because uh, I suspect that the the whole purpose of the guy coming over the gate, the predator-looking guy, and the guy in the bathroom was just to scare these people away. Uh, and if they had seen whatever was behind that that screen, you know, they may not have left there alive. And then they would have ended up being like an entry in a missing 411 book by Politis, right? <laughs> Another <laughs> dot on the on the wall on, on Politis's map, right? Um, uh, you know, and um, that kind of, if you think about it, uh, like this, what I described, this actress, former uh, actress who then became 
a target of this technology. You know, she's driving around. Suddenly, she knows she's in the right neighborhood, but she can't find where she is. Now, imagine if that happened to you in the middle of the forest in an environment that you're not used to. Uh, you could very quickly get uh, disorientated. Uh, and so it makes me wonder about, you know, Politis wrote a whole book about urban disappearances. People who disappear, there's, there's this pattern he writes about, about people who they'll, they'll be in a bar at night, they go into the bathroom, they never come back. Uh, you know, their friends are there waiting for them. They never, they're, they're not on the surveillance tape. They didn't go out the back. They didn't go out the front. You know, where did they go? And then sometimes they end up dead. You know, they end up miles away. Uh, uh-huh. And so, uh, you know, if you injected someone, knocked them out, carried carry them out the back, um, you know, in other words, you could use the invisibility technology to cloak someone else, you know, not just you. Um, uh, so it, it makes me wonder if there's a, a connection between the uh, the missing 411 situation and the uh, this Camellio uh, technology. It does make you wonder that you know, are we merely um, kind of lab rats for for what they're trying to do? Because it, I know a lot of people that have been diagnosed as bipolar or schizophrenic or whatever that 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 are only reacting to situations very much like his and it's been going on for a very long time and there are people in institutions that were not crazy when they were put in there but have now been made crazy by the medications they've been given to cure reality so that so that you know it's it's um you you wonder what I mean, the government. My goodness, they they. Uh, it was it was after World War II. They sprayed um, LSD in the subway just to see what it, how people would react to it in a closed situation. I mean, they have not in any way um, been reluctant to utilize uh, the citizens as as um, test objects. The, the key, you know, the, the airmen, um, the uh, you know, the government has has in many ways used us um, as lab rats. It, it it has, you know, there's nothing you can say. And and in many cases, um, I can only speak of the FBI because that's the only experience that I've had. But um, my father was uh, was in the FBI during World War II, but afterwards he he worked with the government. Um, um, doing polymers for the bottom of a boat to, and doing lots of stuff that, that was, I guess, top secret. My parents were divorced by then. Um, but at one point he was he was being investigated because he was going to be working on something even more secret. And we had the FBI um, surveilling my, my mother, my sister, and I in our house uh, where we lived for months. And it got to the point where my mother would send out cookies to them because they were so obviously just sitting there watching the house, seeing what we were going to do. Um, <laughs> and, and, and at one point, you know, she 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 was it was it was late at night, and I was supposed to go someplace. She said, "Don't worry, they'll follow you. You'll be fine." I mean, it was it was it was ridiculous. They were so obvious. So at least the FBI was very obvious. I don't know. Maybe some of the other branches of the government are a little bit more, but. Um, I've experienced some of some of the stuff that he has. I've experienced, 
you know that feeling and 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 I I the electronic stuff too and and the electronic stuff you know what they did with um using electronics on on was it uh, Panama the the embassy there Oh well, the the, uh, the you're talking about the the Havana syndrome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's kind of amazing how uh, much that that's in the news now, uh, where they're actually openly admitting that this technology exists. But in fact, it goes back it goes back decades. Uh, I remember one of the books that Richard Schoenger uh, recommended to me was a book called Excalibur Briefing, explaining paranormal uh-huh. phenomena by Thomas Bearden. This was published back in the late 80s, and uh, there's a section in the book on page 229 of the revised edition. Uh, Let me briefly read you this one paragraph. It says, uh, radiation of the U.S. Embassy. About 1959 or 1960, the radiation of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow with weak microwave radiation began. It continues to this day, meaning the late 80s. The radiation is a brilliantly designed intelligence probe. The Soviets were the Soviets were vitally interested in ascertaining whether or not their U.S. adversary knew about psychotronics, i.e., whether the U.S. had built such weapons of its own and might have built defense counterweapons as well. Accordingly, they began weak PT-modulated microwave radiation of a high-level U.S. target, the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, which would guarantee the personal attention of the State Department, NSA, CIA, DIA, the president, etc., the PT modulation apparently consisted of various disease patterns of gradually increasing seriousness, flu, blood changes, heart irregularity, cancer, etc. By the U.S.'s reaction, whether or not it knew anything of PT could be positively assessed. If the U.S. reacted only to ordinary, ordinary electromagnetics, then with 100% certainty it knew nothing of PT, meaning psychotronics, and had no secret PT weapons of of its own or counters the Soviet PT weapons. So since about 1959 or 1960, by our slow reaction to the radiation of the U.S. Embassy, and then by our reaction only to the electromagnetic aspects, we have been assuring the Soviets that we know nothing of PT. Even though several U.S. presidents have protested the radiation, the Soviets have persisted because it is an intelligence tool of the utmost importance to them. So that was back in 1959 and 1960 that embassies were being irradiated. So now we have the same situation uh, in in the news. And, in fact, um, I was surprised that uh, just last month on on National Public Radio, uh, they did a whole report uh, about the Havana Syndrome. Uh, Sarah McCammon, who's the host, uh, talked with uh, Stanford professor David Relman and also uh, talked to this guy named Mark Polymeropoulos, who was working. Uh, uh, he was on a CIA business in Russia uh, when he started experiencing this. Now, this is, this is McCammon, the host, speaking. She says, uh, many U.S. officials and their families have reported similar symptoms that are known as Havana Syndrome because the U.S. government first publicly acknowledged cases reported by U.S. diplomats and intelligence officials in Havana, Cuba. But cases have been reported in India, Austria, and just this week at the Colombian embassy in Bogota. Lawyer Mark Zaid has represented Polymeropolis and several other former U.S. intelligence officials who have suffered such brain injuries. He says many of his clients feel the U.S. government wasn't talking, taking their concerns seriously enough. 
And then skipping down, she says, but now the U.S. government is taking steps to deal with this mysterious illness. Last year, the U.S. State Department commissioned a report by the National Academy of Sciences, and this summer, CIA Director Bill Burns told NPR helping victims and finding out what's causing this illness is at the top of his list. So then this lawyer, Zaid, says, we will ultimately learn much more about it. I just don't know whether it will be in the next year or five years or ten years, (laughs) but it will happen. Uh, And then uh, the host interviews this medical researcher at Stanford, David Relman, and he says, we heard about how the case began, how their experience occurred, and some of them told us some very dramatic stories about crawling out of the room and finding that everything resolved, and in some cases then returning to find that everything resumed again back at the exact same spot. So it was this dramatic sense that everything was taking place at a particular spot that something for us could not be explained by natural phenomenon that we had heard about. Now, this is very, this is very similar to a lot of people who are targeted, that it, it, uh-huh. it's uh, targeted in, in a specific location. And, in fact, uh, going back to the 80s, there was a man named Harlan Gerard uh, who talked extensively about this. Um, uh, he was one of the, the first to come out and talk about being targeted uh, in this way. Uh, now, uh, further on in the report, it says um, it's interesting that McCammon asked Relman, would victims have to be intentionally targeted, intentionally hit with these microwaves? So it's interesting. That, you know, I mean, she's actually using the word targeted here. And then Relman says, uh-huh. we thought about what the various sources of such pulsed microwave energy might be. When we look at the world around us, we know there's plenty of microwave radiation. However, most of it comes in the form of a continuous wave, things like microwave ovens or cell phones. But we could not come up with an easy scenario in which these natural but less common pulsed forms of microwave radiation might have explained these cases. And that left us with this very sort of disconcerting notion that it had been produced deliberately by other actors whose purpose we really weren't in a position to fathom. And then McCammon says, before this syndrome, Havana syndrome was reported how much was known in the medical community about these kinds of symptoms potentially being linked to microwaves. And then he says, relatively little. As I say, we were able to find some literature, but again, there just isn't a lot of reported literature in humans. Well, of course, because it's illegal to experiment on humans, so you're not going to (laughs) find reports in the open scientific literature about human targets. But then he says, but, you know, the bottom line is that this is still a perplexing story that still needs further investigation. So it's it's very interesting uh, that they're actually openly talking about it there. And, uh, well, that, that that probably means that they've developed stuff way beyond it, so they can admit that they they did it because they they're not using it anymore. I mean, look at the Montauk project. Look at what they did with kids they took off the street. I mean, you know, these are this is our government, <laughs> and and it's frightening. You and and what really is even more frightening and unsettling and upsetting is the fact that a lot of the stuff that's going on is, you know, people are, are, there's hype on, oh, this has to do with paranormal stuff. And and the reality is, no, it doesn't. And, you know, I, I deal with the paranormal. That's my field, the the mystical, the paranormal. That's, that's, that's where my ballywick is. And there are so many times when things are going on that, that are not aliens. They're not, you know, they're not ghosts. There, there are... There are other things happening and at work, you know, in, in these areas. And 
you know, it, how do you tell somebody, no, you're not haunted, and no, you're not crazy, but but energetically there's something going on here and it's affecting you and the the only suggestion I can give you is to move because I don't know where it's coming from. You know, I can't pinpoint where stuff comes from. But but after reading the book and everything, I'm I'm beginning to kind of want to take a look at some of these cases that I've dealt with over the past and see just how close they were to um, some sort of uh, military installation. Oh, oh yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, when when you were talking about you know moving, uh, and I said I said earlier, you know that's I, I said to Damien, I go, you should just move out of town because hopefully that would end it. I uh-huh. met someone else even before Camellia was published. Um, I appeared on a, a radio show, and I was talking about Camellia, not the book, but uh, Fortean Times had published a kind of condensed version, a, a short article I had written about all of this, and it was the cover feature uh, on, in, in Fortean Times. Um, it was called Strange Tales of Homeland Security. And so I was on a, a radio show talking about that and talking about Damien's experiences, and there was a guy, uh, a Minnesota attorney named Kevin, uh, who came, actually flew out to Southern California and actually met me in my office on campus to talk to me. He had represented uh, an African-American Muslim woman in a discrimination lawsuit against the St. Paul Police Department. And he first encountered the optical camouflage technology in, um, I think, August uh, uh, I, I can't remember the year, but it was it was in Minnesota, uh, and he thought that the the person he saw wearing this optical camouflage technology uh, was field testing the the technology, um, uh-huh. and uh, he uh, he thought he was being harassed be, that his harassment began when he successfully uh, represented this this African American Muslim woman against against the police department. That that's what brought it down on him. And in May of 2016, in San Francisco, he sends an essay to the ACLU in in uh, Minnesota, uh, detailing his harassment. Um, that was about like 11 o'clock at night. Uh, then, right after emailing the essay, he gets jumped uh, by what he thought were at least like four different in, invisible people uh, on Harrison Street in San Francisco. Uh, and he said he described them. They were sort of sparkly, similar to the way Damien described them. He saw their footsteps on the gravel. They chased him down the middle of the street uh, near the ballpark down there. Uh, they put a bag over his head in an alley and started asking him all these weird questions. You know, who was the football coach for the Wazeda football team in 1983? Uh, who was the quarterback? And if you don't answer me correctly, I'm going to you know put a bull in your head. And they had a, they had a gun against his head, or he felt you know it felt like a gun. And they beat the crap out of him, and he ends up in St. Mary's with a skull fracture. St. Mary's kicks him out uh, without treating him, and he ends up at uh, San Francisco General. He spends six days there, and when he tells the doctors what happened, uh, they transformed the psych ward. Right? This is what we were just (laughs) discussing, right? So he spends six days there. When the psychologist sees him, it turns out the um, psychologist went to the University of Chicago for a psychology degree. Now, this guy, the lawyer, he went to the University of Chicago for a law degree. And the psychologist says, what the F are you doing here? Uh, and Kevin says, well, look, there were some misperceptions. I got beaten up. I, I, I just need to get out of here and go back to Minnesota. 
And the doctor says to him, yes, you do. The cops hate you. You need to get out of town. And he said this in a way as if, like, as if he knew this. He knew that the cops hated him and he had to get out of town. Uh, and uh, the psychologist had to escort him out of the hospital. Uh, and the people at the front desk kept coming up with excuses why they couldn't discharge him. And finally, the doctor says, you discharge this man now. And the lawyer thinks, if not for this psychologist, he never would have left the psych ward, you know, not alive. Uh, so he leaves. He walks 15 blocks from the Tenderloin to 3rd and Folsom, uh, uh, a few blocks off Mission Street. And that's where he was living. That's where his apartment was. And a car follows him the whole way home. And so he's getting a little, you know, paranoid, rightly so. Uh, he, so he tapes five or six spoons around the frame of the front door. So if anybody tries it, the spoons would just go flying onto the linoleum floor and he'd hear it. So at about uh-huh. 2 a.m., he wakes up to hear these spoons crashing on the floor. And he, like, gets up out of bed and he's screaming, you know, get the F out of here. And he, he runs into the kitchen and the door is wide open. And the spoons are all on the floor. So he stays up till like 6 a.m. Uh, he, he borrows 300 bucks from some friends. He goes to San Francisco International, gets a one-way flight to Minneapolis on a, you know, an airplane flight. And to this day, he's trying to rebuild his law practice, um, uh, the one he was forced to abandon because he thought if he left town, maybe the harassment would end. But it didn't. Uh, it just got worse when he sent the, the letter to the ACLU. Uh, and it seems clear that this was retaliation for winning this discrimination case, uh, or at least he he thinks that that's what that that's what triggered it. But just like you were saying, you know, he 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 spent time in a psych ward because of this, and he was clearly rational, um, and he learned to keep it to himself, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and and. But you know, if that guy hadn't been sympathetic, and if I mean this, uh, you know, Kevin was from a upper-class background, you know, a high-powered attorney at his own law practice. You know, and it's very strange when you're sitting there, you know, in my office on campus, and you're talking to an attorney, and he's asking me for advice. (laughs) Well, in in this kind of situation, you know, it does, you know, um, it does make you wonder if we have all this technology and, and, you know, obviously we have it. Uh, the one thing that I wondered throughout the whole book, two things. One thing in particular, did the government get back their computer? Oh, um, okay. I well, I assume they got back the computer because it was right there. I mean, it was okay. right there in the in the bedroom. Uh, and the other uh, thing, I, the other thing I'm wondering is, I would bet you money that those night goggles. Um, Probably were able to see the invisibility technique. They 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 had to be more than just night night vision goggles. That's interesting. Uh, I uh, me and Damien speculated about this with Richard, and Richard offered the same speculation. He said that he thought that perhaps it was a possibility that what was so special about these night vision goggles was that they had the ability to see through the optical camouflage technology. Uh, if, now, if you, uh, if you, you can hear uh, Richard uh, tell his part of the story. He was interviewed by a guy named Jeff Brady, who hosts mm-hmm. a show uh, for KPFA uh, in, in New York, or, or is it WBAI, the Pacifica Station in New York. 
Um, and um, uh, he he interviewed Richard Schoenkert. I, I posted the link to, uh, on my website, uh, cryptoscology.com. So you can hear Richard, you know, tell his his part of the story. He mentions that that he speculated about that at the time, uh, though he's not he's not entirely sure that that that's the case. Uh, but that was he did speculate about it at one point. You know, what was so special about these things? Um, yeah, there's no, it, there's no way that they would have just gone for regular night, night vision goggles. They wouldn't have gone to all that trouble. I, I wouldn't think so. Uh, you know, you could buy those, you know, online. You know, yeah. why, you know why, why, why were they so uh, obsessed with them? Um, and then, you know, it's interesting that. Uh, you know, tying this into the the entire to the missing 411 situation and David Politis, um, uh-huh. I was reading one of his books and he mentioned a case about a guy named Todd Geib, G E I B, who was this kid who um, was found uh, dead after having um, gone missing mysteriously, and they found that there were these uh, antidepressants in his system. Uh, and he wasn't known, you know, to be taking antidepressants. This was not something that had been prescribed to him or anything. One, uh-huh. uh, and he said, and Politis said that this wasn't just him. There were other cases where they had found this, uh, and they were called uh, amitriptyline and decepramine, both antidepressants. And one of the major side effects of the decepramine is cognitive memory impairment, and one of the major side effects of amitriptyline are delirium and confusion. Uh, now, what I find interesting about that is when I interviewed Melinda Leslie, and I interviewed her for about four hours or more uh, about her experiences with surveillance, harassment, my lab cases, and her alien abduction cases, she, um, she mentioned that she was involved in this group abduction in, I think, 2010 in Arizona. She and about four other people were all taken at the same time. And they're all, and she said they were taken to an underground base in Arizona, and 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 with, and then when they got there, there were like a hundred other people there, dozens and dozens of other people who were taken at the same time, and she said that they performed these odd experiments and tests on them. Um, They wanted to see if she could move this particular object with her mind from across the room and all this other stuff. These these were you know human beings you know military people doing this. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, at the end of the evening, when they returned her and the four other people, when they were in the process of returning them to this van and driving them back to where they, they first picked them up, uh, they gave them a little a little plastic uh, container filled with this white liquid. Uh, and Melinda said, been there, done that, like, I, I knew the taste of that thing, the smell of it. I had, I, they had given it to me on many other occasions, uh, and she said, "It makes all the, it makes your memory go away." Uh, now, what's interesting is that in this particular case, because they picked, they abducted four people at once. When they woke up in the morning, they all began comparing notes, and I think maybe it locked in the memory more than it would have if it had just been one person. So yeah. they were able to remember little snatches of the of this incident. 
and she remembered. She remembered being given this this liquid. And what triggered it was she said there was one night where she had a uh, a cold, and she went to the to Rite Aid or some pharmacy to get um, a medicine, and it had a kind of a flavoring t- to it that. And she remembered the taste of it and the smell of it, and it brought her back to that to being in that underground base and and being told to drink this. And then and she remembered after she drank it, they they put her into this into this van, like a big rideshare van. Uh, uh-huh. And she remembers like struggling to stay awake. She remembers seeing the like desert landscape outside the window as they were driving away from the base, and she was struggling to stay awake. And then finally, it was just too much, and and she went out. Um, and I thought, you know, if that's something that's, you know, she said that wasn't the only time they gave her that. If this is something that happens frequently, uh, there has to be times where you mess up. Oh, <laughs> you I know, would right? think so, yeah. And, and maybe you give someone a little too much or something goes wrong. What do you do with that or person? Yes. Yeah. Or, or there's a, a reaction. Um, a reaction is something you, you yeah. an, an allergic reaction, something you didn't even you know uh, count on, perhaps. And so, so what if that person dies? What do you do? Do you bring them back to their house, or do you just dump them in the forest somewhere? <laughs> and then someone comes along and does an autopsy and says, "Oh, look, there's this mysterious antidepressants, uh, desipramine and amitriptyline." Uh, and they're, "Oh, huh? That's funny. They weren't prescribed antidepressants." How did it get wow. into their system? Uh, and you know, and people, when people talk about the missing 411, they say, "Well, is it Bigfoot? Is it is it aliens?" I mean, I don't think Bigfoot's injecting you with antidepressants. No, uh, but in, uh, you know, one of the other things that you mentioned, uh, Skinwalker Ranch has has had some really fascinating things going on there. But they, they some of the people have had radiation burns, and one of the uh, people that works on the ranch had. Um, his 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 brain swelled, his head swelled, and and they had to take the pressure off of it, um, so that, and again, I think it, from what I could tell, um, there was a lot of um, electronic activity. You know, I, there's probably a base underneath that area somehow, somewhere, because it seems to me there's so much going on electronically there, that that is above the spectrum of what is normal that that has to be feeding into what's going on with um, not only the people but the animals as well. So, and, and again, it's our government. It's not aliens. Right. Yeah, well, I talked to a guy who worked on the ranch for many years, and he read Camellio, and he called me to talk to me about it, and he said that all the stuff that he thought was, supernatural in origin he read camellio and he said all the stuff i saw was the same stuff described in camellios when i was reading camellio everything that happened to damien happened to me and these other people when we were working at the ranch um uh even the you know he saw you know a man turn into a wolf and run away um well that there's a scene i mentioned in camellio and it's around about page 50 i think where i talk about one of damien's friends this guy named adam who was in Pacific mm-hmm. Beach at the same time, and he talked about going driving into the desert in Santee, California, S-A-N-T-E-E, um, which is a, a, a desert area. And uh, he was around the same time that all this stuff was happening to Damien. He drove out there in, in a Jeep, and uh, he and uh, a friend of his saw 
off in the distance, he said what looked like you know these dark humanoid figures, and he could hear gunfire, and they were a little wary, but they were kind of curious, so they got closer. And when they got closer, they they saw what they described as upright apes firing guns <laughs> oh, yeah. in the desert. And, and uh, I, I remember thinking, should I include this or leave this part out? <laughs> uh, but I remembered something that John Keel said in an interview. He said that uh, his fellow ufologists would have a pet theory as to what was going on in, yeah. in the cases they were investigating. And if something happened that contradicted that theory, they would leave it out. Or if it was too ridiculous, they would leave it out. And John Keel said very often those are the most important details to include. The the ones that sound most ridiculous and absurd. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I thought, no, I should not leave it out. I gotta leave the I gotta leave the eight men in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, uh it's uh, it's no, just I, interesting I, that you know, the Politis talks about uh, a case where there were these three kids who went missing in the woods and um they were they were looking for them for for hours and hours uh, for days couldn't find them couldn't find them finally this one of the the park rangers finds the three kids hiding behind a bush they'd been yelling out their names he he goes up to them he says why what the why didn't you respond when when we called out your names and they said uh we were hiding from the ape men uh mm-hmm. you know which could be bigfoot but also uh, uh you know as w- richard said you know, you can make a tree look like an elephant. You can make an elephant look like a tree. You can make a human look yeah. like, you know, a monster. Uh, and that, and Richard included this in the original patent, but he was thinking of it in terms of um, using it against foreign dictators, like someone like Fidel Castro or something like that. He didn't think that it would be used against <laughs> the American population. You know, uh, he wouldn't be the first naive scientist to. To, to, to think that his technology would not be misappropriated by the government. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's the sad thing. You get all this technology, and it, it might have a better use for it, but the first thing they look up, look at, at is, you know, how do we weaponize it? And, 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 you know, how do you use it against a foreign power? I mean, okay, they've tested it against the U.S. They, they know what it ha- what it does to people. But but they're not using it against anybody else. And in many cases, I think they're developing it so they know what the other guys have, and they have to make it worse. Um, right. And it's it, it's really insulting to to have been a part of of any of these experiments. And and you know I've I've experienced some of them. I have friends that have experienced some others, never as extreme as this. But and. And because I'm in this field, I talk to lots of people that, that I am sure are not are not in a paranormal sense having a problem. It's it's more of a you're 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 in an energetic field that is not normal that is causing you to react this way. And and you know I sometimes get strange strange looks like you mean it's it's not aliens and it's not you know no it's it's a real physical thing happening to you and you need to remove yourself from the situation and 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 but there are times when it is the other too i mean i'm not saying that it's it's in every case but 
I think people have to understand this, that sometimes when you're having strange things happen to you, it, it, it's, it is strange things happening to you, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the other side. It could be our own government playing with the energy field. Well, uh, soon after I uh, published Camellio, I I did a, a follow-up interview with with Richard Schellinger and uh, published it in Nexus Magazine. It was uh, 2016, I think. And uh, the whole focus of the article, and in fact, I, I mentioned in the during that first initial interview that we conducted back in 2006, there's a point in the interview where I say to Richard, "Hey, we should just talk about." do a whole separate interview just focused on your interest in esoteric subjects, uh, Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, mm-hmm. and how that overlaps with your scientific research. So we finally got around to, to doing that, uh, and and that was the focus of the, of the interview. And he talked about how uh, he was initiated into Freemasonry uh, on the island of Guam back in the 50s, and he joined the Rosicrucians around the same time. And he said it was this interest in 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 hermetic philosophy and uh um esotericism that sparked this interest in looking into the optical camouflage um technology because he said ever since he he had been initiated into the Rosicrucians, he'd always heard talk, rumors, legends about these ascended masters who could make themselves invisible. Uh, by basically um, convincing the other person that they couldn't see them. So it wasn't actual invisibility, but it was more like hypnotism. Uh, And he thought that was interesting. And then later on in the 60s, he got into UFOs. And he said he he was fascinated by the fact that in all these cases, they would talk about these UFOs suddenly phasing out or or suddenly Uh as if they zip just like either – phased into another dimension, or they went so fast you couldn't see them. And so he started thinking along the lines of cloaking technology this was back in the 60s. He's thinking along the lines of cloaking technology. How would you uh, be able to uh, hide um, a vehicle that's moving in the atmosphere? Uh, so he started back engineering it you know, in, in his own mind. Um, and so, in a way, you could say that uh, the Camellio technology is like the cargo cult version of something that already exists. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you remember those old Tarzan movies from the 30s where you'd see the African natives had built, like, uh, an airplane out of bamboo and they were worshipping it because they saw the airplane well, in the sky? Yeah, you're talking Patagonia, yeah. That's kind of like Richard's technology. You know, <laughs> he's reading these reports of UFOs and trying to think, okay, how would we do this with the technology we have available to us right now? And so by the Uh 1980s, he starts experimenting with it. So in other words, you know, I'm not saying that every single UFO report or alien abduction could be explained in this way, Uh, but just that it seems as if the – as Solaris Blue Raven told me one night, she phrased it in the perfect way. She says they – they weaponize the paranormal. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, they know how to exploit uh, the UFO mythos uh, and use it as a cover for these for these experiments. Um, oh, and it's, it's I, I, I had a friend. And, yeah. Oh, go yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's actually it's brilliant. And somebody once said that the next 
big thing that the humanity is going to face is an invasion from outer space. And and I will bet you money that if you think you're seeing it, you're probably seeing a holographic presentation so that they can enslave to a greater degree humanity as it is now. Well, it, you know, it's interesting that that idea actually pops up um, I think the earliest appearance of that idea in pop culture is there's an episode of Outer Limits in the 60s called Architects of Fear, which is all about this group of scientists who are pacifists, and they want to end the Cold War. So they stage an alien invasion. They, they actually mutate Martin Landau to make him look like uh-huh. an alien being. <laughs> and, then, and, and that idea pops up again in Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' graphic novel Watchmen, which came out uh-huh. in the late 80s, where uh, a, a scientist does a similar thing. He, he, he manufactures a fake alien and drops it in New York and kills millions of people to make the world think that they're being invaded from outer space so that the world powers will get together and, and end, uh, end warfare, essentially. And, um, and this idea pops up again in the, in the late 60s in a book called The Report on Iron Mountain by Leonard Lewin, uh, which purports mm-hmm. to be an actual top-secret document in which they talk about various ways that they're going to keep the military-industrial complex uh, operating. And one of the, the methods is, is to fake an alien invasion. Now, Len, later on, Leonard Lewin said that, um, that he made it all up. It was, a, it was intended to be a satire on the you know, uh, military-industrial complex. And, uh, but the funny thing is that L. Fletcher Prouty, and we're talking now on November 22nd, the anniversary of JFK assassination, L. Fletcher Prouty was Mr. X in Oliver Stone's JFK film played by Donald Sutherland. Uh, uh-huh. L. Fletcher Prouty wrote the book The Secret Team, and he wrote a book called JFK about the JFK assassination and everything that led up to it. And uh, Prouty said that when he was in working in the Kennedy administration in the early 60s, um, the the young guys who were working in the administration, he heard them say these things. <laughs> so he yeah. said to he said to Lewin, if you made it all up, you know, you accidentally recreated something that was actually being talked about. So just because something's satire doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> That's true. Listen, I just saw our time. Our time is up, and we didn't really get into cryptoscatology. So you're, I'm going to have to have you back for that one. That would be I I would be happy to. I want want to thank you so very, very much. This has been an amazing show, and and I'm sure everybody is going to thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. Let me briefly mention uh, there's a website called fightgangstalking.com, which gives uh, uh, very simple things that you can do if you feel that you're being targeted. Uh, If you go and look at that website and you go and you look on the upper right-hand side, there's a little thing that says tactics for fighting back. It gives you very real-world, simple techniques that you can use to try to uh, fight back, at least in a uh, in some small, uh, mundane way. But it's it's worth looking at. Fightgangstalking.com, and then look at the section called Tactics for Fighting Back. Fantastic! Thank you so much again, and, and I look I look forward to getting into cryptoscatology with you again because uh, that's cool stuff. That's a great book too. So. Um, Everybody check it out. Both these books are on Amazon along with a lot of his other stuff, too. So um, check it all out. Again, thank you, Robert. This has been a great show. Uh, uh, Thank you for having me. 
And also, guys, um, check us out on on YouTube. We'll be up there, you know, shortly. And uh, if you if you like what you see, please please subscribe because that's how we know you're watching. Thanks a lot and good night. <laughs>